0: Jesus said to her, that's Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? That's what he asked her. Do you believe this? Good morning, church. Welcome back and uh, welcome to December. We've arrived the final month of 2021. The stage decorations look good. We're in the holiday spirit. I hope you are. Jesus asks you the same question he asks Martha today. Do you believe this? I vividly remember my first encounter with death. I imagine you probably remember yours too. My granny Lived in McMinnville, Tennessee, and on her property was a creek. And though she was fighting cancer my whole childhood, when me and my two brothers would come to her house, she would muster up all the the strength she had to go wade in the creek with me and my brothers. We would throw rocks. We'd play fetch with our dog, Daisy. It's a collie who liked to play fetch. We would drink lots of sun drop. And... She even taught me and my two brothers how to cross stitch, as difficult of a task that would have been. (laughs) My favorite part of the visit, the highlight of every visit, was that she would have bought a treat before we showed up at her house. And she stashed the treat away in some secret part of her house. It was often found hidden in a drawer in a desk somewhere in in her house. And we would go on a hunt before we would leave. She'd say, go find the treat. We would search everywhere high and low. We'd finally find it. And she'd give us a hug, and we'd leave Granny's house. When I was eight years old, her body was no longer able to fight the cancer. And my parents prepared me and my two brothers for one final visit. They said, this one's going to be a little different. We won't wade in the creek. We're not throwing any rocks. We're not playing fetch. We won't have sun drop. We're going to just go stand beside Granny's bed for one final visit. We'll be quiet. That was kind of a A warning, we'll be quiet, boys. We're going to stand there. We'll say our goodbyes and we'll come home. So that's what we did. We stood in a dark room. We remained quiet and solemn, respectful, and we stood beside her bed and we said our goodbyes. And would you believe it, that hidden in the sheets of my granny's deathbed was a treat for me and my brothers. Gum in the shape of Crayola crayons, it was. And we left with those treats as our final visit wrapped up. I think about her a lot. I think about her every time I see a creek. I think about her every time I see somebody open Sundrop or have a sip myself, anytime I see cross stitching. But like you, and I imagine you would expect this, I think about her most during the holidays. My granny could cook, y'all. She could cook. And I miss her spread. I specifically miss her sourdough bread. I miss the way she did the turkey and the dressing. I think about her in the holidays, and I I think we share that in common. You probably, like me, think about the ones you've lost this season. So I was doing a little bit of reading online, and counselors, therapists, psychiatrists, they're all writing right now about holiday grief, articles and blogs. Here's, Here's a little excerpt that I read from Dr. Drew Ramsey from New York City. He said, we miss those we love who have passed. Mourning is non-linear, and my patients are often surprised by the intensity of loss they feel. Holiday traditions revolve around people we love. And the mix of holiday cheer on the one hand and reactivated mourning on the other creates an emotional dissonance for us. Reactivated mourning I think that's a powerful phrase, and many of you are experiencing it right now as you do every holiday, it's like what was once a wound is now reopened And you experience the pain. For some of us, the only person we can see around the holiday table is the only person who's not there. Because we think about the ones that we've lost every holiday season. I'm gonna tell you something you already know, but it's a sober truth. We currently live in the world of the dying, we live in a world of death and decay. That reality is pressed in on us this season. Not just is this a holiday season, it's yet another one in a pandemic. So you might also be concerned about other ones you don't want to see suffer and die. Let me just say it like this. For as in Adam all die. This is my biblical proof. We live in a world of death and decay. As in Adam all die. The biblical phrase in Adam means you're flesh and blood. If you're flesh and blood, you're in Adam. He's our forefather of the human race. You're born in him. All die in the biblical language just means all die. All die. We all die. Whatever we have been able to conquer as human beings, we have not conquered death. It triumphs everywhere. It strikes babies and teenagers and young adults and midlifers and older people. When all is said and done, rocket scientists die. Politicians die. Doctors die. Professors die. Nobel Peace Prize winners die. The rich die, and the poor die, the good die, and the evil die. Farmers die, bankers die, carpenters die, computer programmers die, and preachers live forever. No, preachers die. (laughs) This is such an encouraging quote by Piper. I just had to share it with you this morning. We all die. The good news of the Bible is that this is only half the truth. But there is another truth revealed. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. This is the good news. I'm not here to preach bad news to you. This is the good news. So in Adam was not hard for you to get in. You were born in Adam. You didn't ask for it. Your mom did all the hard work. She pushed you out. Boom. You're in flesh and blood. and You're born in Adam. You were just born that way. Being in Christ is actually the very same way. You don't have to work to be in Christ. But you have to be born again. If you're born again, this time not of flesh and blood, but you're born again of the Holy Spirit, a greater birth than your physical birth, You're born again of the Holy Spirit, all live, and you live even though you die if you're born again in Christ. It's the work of the Holy Spirit to give you new life, new birth that will never end if you're born in Jesus Christ. And I'm actually here to preach that message. I'm not here to preach about death. I'm here to preach about life. This morning I'm here to preach this point, and it's going to be in our story. Jesus entered the world of the dying to rescue you and to take you with him into the world of the living. That's my point this morning. Jesus entered the world of the dying to get you out of it. And to take you into the world of the living. That's a massive claim. That's a massive claim to say about a person. That he has the power to transform you from death to life. Such a massive claim It would be really helpful if we had some evidence, wouldn't it? So we're going to look at the evidence. I'm going to show you a story from John chapter 11. One of the best in the scriptures. Man, this is rich. It's a powerful story. If I were you, I am one of you. I would have this on proverbial speed dial through the holiday season. I would memorize portions of this story. I would be in the story. I would share this story. This is the evidence that we need that Jesus is the one who's come into the world of the dying and who has the power to get you into the world of the living. After we share the story from John 11, I'm going to lovingly challenge you to live, grieve, and die like you believe it, like you actually believe it. All right, John 11. We're going to read the story. We'll be in it for a little bit of time. Don't rush me. Let's just go through it. All right? Maybe, I don't know, 10, 12 minutes, however long it takes us. Let's just work through it. Let's get some details. And then we'll lovingly challenge you to live, to grieve, and to die like you believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. John 11, verse 1. Now, a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village, uh, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. John's point in saying that is that Jesus had a very close friendship with Mary, Martha, and with Lazarus. When he would go south into the southern portion of the country, Judea, he often stayed with them. This is like a home away from home. So you imagine every festival, anytime he would come teach in Judea, he's staying with this family. They loved him. He loves them. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. Notice this. They don't even make a request. They know how much Jesus loves Lazarus. All they have to do is notify him that he's sick. That's enough. Jesus would surely be compelled by his love for his good friend. He is a healer after all. When he heard this, Jesus said, This sickness will not end in death. Very interesting statement in the gospel. No, he said, it's for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. By saying it will not end in death, he doesn't say we won't visit death in the story. He just says that's not the ultimate destination, death. And then when he says the Son's glory, he's, he's using a phrase that you're going to read all through the Gospel of John. And it's, it's actually really not a pleasant one. The glory of the Son, as Jesus puts it, is his own death and crucifixion. So here he's already foreshadowed, I'm going to go, we're going to to do something, but this isn't going to end in death for Lazarus, although it will for me. It will for me. Keep reading. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So, verse 5 and verse 6 are connected. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. Jesus loved, that's not a typo. Jesus loved Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, so he didn't hurry to them. He stayed two more days. How is that an act of love? What's Jesus doing here? Here's one way to think about it. The way Jesus loves his people is by giving himself to his people. And by staying two extra days, he's created now an opportunity where he can give more of himself to Mary and to Martha than if he had hurried. He can show more of his power to Mary and Martha. And thus love them deeply by giving more of himself. Let us go back to Judea, he now says to his apostles. But, Rabbi, they said, a short while ago the Jews there tried to stone you, and yet you're going back? Jesus answered, Are there not 12 hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they will see by this world's light. It's when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. He's a wise man and he's speaking in kind of a wise riddle. The simple truth of that riddle is, no one's going to snuff my time out on me until my time has come. So yes, I've been threatened in Judea, but we're going to go down to Judea and no one will take my life before I'm willing to lay it down on my own accord. This is going to precipitate that. But it won't happen too soon. He says, there's enough time in the day for me to do what I've come to do. No more, no less. There's time enough. After he said this, he went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, just like you or me would. Lord, if he sleeps, he will get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and for your sake I'm glad I was not there so that you may believe. But let's go to him. This is the formula for every conversation in the Gospel of John between Jesus and his apostles. Here's the formula. Jesus says something, the apostles, just like we would, the apostles miss it. They don't understand the full punch of what he's saying, so they ask some question or they show that they don't understand, and then Jesus comes down and he speaks plainly. It's a really important formula because here's what's happening. It's revealing to us that Jesus' thoughts are higher than our thoughts. Jesus is a man of wisdom. He's a man of faith. He's a man of the Holy Spirit. So when he speaks, we're like, "I I don't get it. Then he comes down to your level and he explains it plainly. That whole process is so that then you would eventually be able to get up to his level and think in terms of wisdom and faith and spirituality. If you don't eventually learn to think and to talk like this, then guess what's going to happen? You're going to stay down at the level of the world, the world of death and decay, the world of rot, the world of sin, the world of foolishness, the world of rebellion, and you can't get your thoughts up there. So Jesus is discipling them, lovingly showing, I'm up here, guys, in a different world. I'm going to bring you there. So he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. I'm glad I wasn't there. Now you can believe. Let's go to him. Then Thomas, also known as Didymus, or the twin, said to the rest of his disciples, let us also go then that we may die with him. So Thomas gets a bad rap. He's called Doubting Thomas. We like to pick on him. We often find some biblical character that we just kind of let out all of our passive aggressive, you know, pent up cynicism. Thomas is that guy. But in this In this particular line, you really can learn something from Thomas. He expects they're going to die because in Judea, on multiple occasions, Jesus has been threatened. And then out of his loyalty, he says, let's let's go die too then. He's, He's a loyal follower of Jesus. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now, Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem. And many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. That point there about Bethany only being two miles from Jerusalem is a significant one. Jerusalem is a big city. Bethany's small, but Jerusalem is big, which means a whole bunch of Jews could come to Bethany and grieve the loss of Lazarus. A lot of them did. If you're a Jew and you know of a death, you go. All right? You're kind of obligated. The whole community would come out. So we're dealing with a large crowd. Now, Martha has... Come out to meet him, but Mary's at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Lord, if you had just shown up a little earlier, Lord, if you had come to my granny's house just a few days earlier, she wouldn't have died. These biblical characters are real humans. This is a very real hurt. It's one I'm sure you've experienced. If you had been here, we wouldn't be beside a tomb today. And here we are. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. That's a statement of great faith. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered with another line of great faith. I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Martha here is reaching the pinnacle of her nation's faith. You even have religious re- elites in the first century in the Israel, who didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. These are Sadducees. Martha is going beyond many of the religious elites and saying, I do believe in the resurrection of the dead. I have that kind of faith. But the one thing that's lacking is that she's orienting her faith around some powerful day to come. And Jesus says, don't do that. What you need to do is point your faith to a particular person. And that person is right here in your midst, Martha. That's why he says, I am. I am the resurrection, and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Don't put your hope in some event. A person is who you have your hope in, and I'm right here. Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. Notice this. Jesus has done nothing with Lazarus, but he's drawing out statements of faith from Martha. He has not even... He hasn't touched Lazarus and not doing anything with him yet. He's drawing out statements of faith. The reason for that is going to be explained in a few verses. Seeing isn't believing. Believing is seeing. He's going to clarify that in a minute. After she said this, she went back and called her sister Mary. The teacher is here, she said, and he's asking for you. So when Mary heard this, she got up and quickly went to the tomb. When the crowd saw that Mary had quickly gone to the tomb, they thought Mary was going to grieve. So the large crowds go out with Mary to follow her to the tomb. That right there is evidence that this is an eyewitness story. This is not a stuff of a legend. This right here is a story that happened in Bethany in the first century. And a large crowd is now gathered. It's not just a family side service anymore. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and she said the same thing Martha said. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Very rare word in the New Testament. You see deeply moved in spirit in Gethsemane. Gethsemane where he grieves with a depth of grief even his Sweat is like blood. Come and see where we've laid him. They replied, and Jesus wept. He's not weeping for Lazarus. He has Lazarus in his hand. He's weeping because he's seeing the sisters weep. Jesus is a man of great compassion. And so what moves them moves him. Jesus has entered the world of the dying to rescue us and take us to the world of the living. But when he entered the world of the dying, he felt it. He felt all of it, the pain of it, the horror of it, the sorrow of it. You don't have a high priest who's disconnected from you today, but a high priest who's mourned it. And that word there is, I don't mean to be crass or crude, that word there is is, is the word for like an animal snorting. This got him, man, deeply. It got Jesus. He wept with them. Not for Lazarus. He knows he's got Lazarus. He just weeps because he loves them, and they're weeping. And death is a horrible thing. Then the Jews said, see how we loved him? But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. Now listen to Martha. She's already professed faith, but check this out. Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there's a bad odor, for it's been four days. She refuses to just jump up and take away the stone. But she's already professed faith. You know this, don't you? There's a difference between saying you believe and rolling away a stone. There's a difference. And now he's he's noticing Martha kind of stop short at the point of action. Martha, he says, didn't I already tell you that if you would believe, you'd see the glory of God? We've already gone through this. Don't stop at the point of action. You believe in me, roll the stone away, Martha. So they rolled the stone away. Jesus looked up and he prayed. There's a lot in this prayer. Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I know you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here that what? They may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice and something happened that no sentiment in the United States of America could ever capture properly. He called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out of that tomb, still wrapped in his gravecloths, with the cloth even on his face. This happened, a man coming out of the tomb because of the voice of Jesus. You know dead man can't hear at least one voice. The powerful voice of the resurrection and the life, he called him by name and Lazarus came out. And at this point, a lot of the senses have already been impacted. They smell the odor, they hear the loud cry of Jesus' voice, they see the man come out. But just to make sure the crowd gets it and that you and I in the 21st century can really believe Jesus says, now go to him. And touch him. Get your hands involved. And you guys take off the grave clothes. So you know that you know that you know the resurrection and the life is among you today. I am he. There's a large crowd. And just as the case with any crowd of people, it's divided about what to think about Jesus. Here's what it said in verse 45. Many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary had seen what Jesus did and they believed in him. But some went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. This is called, this story is called the resurrection that led to death. Because in John's gospel, now the plan to eliminate Jesus is being enacted as the Pharisees find out about this story. This isn't the only sign given to you in the scriptures that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. You might remember a few of them if you're a Bible student. Jesus raised Jairus, the synagogue ruler's 12-year-old daughter in Mark 5. Jesus raised the widow's son in Nain, Luke 7. Jesus most convincingly triumphed over his own grave in John 20. All of this is written so that you might believe and have life by believing in Jesus that he is who he says he is, that he is the resurrection and the life. My question is, for the time of study as I looked into this chapter, my question was this, what would happen if we really believed? What comes of a community of people like you and me who really believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life? We don't stop short at action, but we really believe it. So I scoured the New Testament over the last few weeks and I just was asking the question, what happens in the lives of people who really believe this? I kind of compiled a short list there's a whole lot of stuff in there, like a published short list. Let me tell you what's not on that list. What I did not find in a community that believes is that immediately all death and decay stopped in their bodies. I didn't find that. I still found people getting sick, still found people dying, still found people being buried in the New Testament. What I did find, I want to share with you, but before I share it with you, you got to make a promise. Thank you. <laughs> got to make a promise. I'm gonna share you this list, but you gotta promise me we're not just talking about the church back then. Can you promise me that? This is for you today. This is how we live. All right, here's what I found as you look at a community that believes. Number one, they eat together with gladness. All my food lovers say amen. amen. They labor together with courage. And three, they grieve together with hope. Please don't make this just about some church gone by. North Boulevard. Eat together with gladness, labor together with courage, grieve together with hope. This is for us, man, if you believe. If you believe that Jesus is a resurrection, the life. Number one, I'll be very quick on each of these. Eat together with gladness. Well, let me say this. A lot of communities eat together. A lot of communities labor together. A lot of communities grieve together. You see this? The gladness, the courage, and the hope is a direct gift to Jesus' community because they know that he's coming to the world of the dying to take them to the world of the living. This is absolutely a transformative work of Jesus in our midst. If we'll let it be so. If we'll let it be so. But you know everything on that list is under attack right now. It always is, always will be. You know the enemy doesn't want you to have anything on that list. So check this out. They they eat together with gladness. Acts chapter 2 verse 46. They broke, I love this verse, it's in my dining room. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. What's the response of a community, a family, who believes that Jesus has conquered death? Apparently, the response is to fire up the grill. Get the ovens warm, open the doors, set the table. There's something to celebrate. It's not manufactured gladness, guys. It was like, there's something real here. The world offers a chance at gladness. I'm going to tell you how the world offers it to you. In the world, if you want a shot at gladness, you have to escape from the pain of current reality into some untrue fantasy you invent, often where you become the central figure. If you just, if you don't have Christ in the world, this is your shot at joy. Escape into your own fantasy where you're the central figure. That's not what the church is doing. Nobody sitting around these tables is in denial of death and decay. Nobody's trying to pretend that there's really not hurt in the world. Nobody comes to the meeting of the saints with a glad heart saying, man, isn't it great? Nobody's hurting. Nobody's sick. Nobody's dying. I don't really have to mourn the loss of my granny Nobody's coming in denial of the current reality. But Christian gladness works like this. Christian gladness is about accepting this current reality of death and decay, but accepting it as the lesser reality, as a temporary reality. Christian gladness comes when you accept that the resurrection and the life, that's Jesus, is the ultimate reality. Not death and decay, man, Jesus. So. Not only are we in the holiday season, we're in a global pandemic, and I understand that our enemy is robbing us of gladness by taking something that is part of the current reality, sickness and death, and keeping it so on the forefront of your minds that you are sucked bone dry of joy. Bone dry. Almost as if to feel glad would be inappropriate but he's trying to convince you death and decay is the ultimate reality and the gladness that they meet with we meet with could be defined like this i love this, this is so life giving wild joy ecstatic delight exultation and exhilaration that's the word that's used in acts 246 like there's a wild animal of gladness that should not be caged in the church there's some wild animal of gladness that should not be tamed by our enemy I don't care the circumstances. I care in the sense I mourn with you, but I don't care in the sense that Satan should never rob us of this. This is what we have in Jesus Christ. Eat together with gladness. So I have a life group at the West Campus, and y'all, we are very different at the West Campus. I love West. We kind of think and act a little different. Let me explain. So in this life group, we're like three meetings in to, to meeting with each other. At, the, at this life group, we're getting to know each other. We're telling our stories. I leave them in the kitchen where we've got this spread of food, our kids are running around and playing. I just go into the other room. I don't remember what for, maybe I just used the bathroom. I don't know why I walked out. But when I come back into the kitchen, guys, no joke, my life group has spontaneously combusted into a clogging party in the kitchen. Like this kind of, okay, you know what I mean? Clogging. Now, I'm a minister of the Church of Jesus Christ. I did not even tap my foot to the music, I promise. And I've already reported it to the elders, uh, so you don't have to do that. Do you know why they were clogging? Because they're weird. No, no. Do you know why they're clogging? Not because they're in any kind of a denial, but because Jesus has entered the world of the dying to rescue us and take us to the world of the living, guys. That's why. That's, that's true gladness. Number two, labor together with courage. There is a uh, type of gladness the world offers. There's also a type of courage the world offers. It's called YOLO. This is the world's courage. It's already kind of out of style. I'm looking at young people. I know, I know it's already on its way out. I get it. But uh, YOLO is like you only live once kind of courage. I love this kind of courage. I'm not even dogging it. Like I, I actually get this. I'm an orange personality. If you and I are standing on a bluff overlooking a body of water and you look at me and you say YOLO, I'll jump, I promise, every time. YOLO is, since you only live once, don't let life pass you by. Grab every adventure. Take every risk. Like, if you're sitting there and you think, man, I've been wanting to do it, and your friend just says, YOLO, and you push you over the edge a little bit. And you take the moment. You seize it. and You jump. But that's not the depth of courage in the Bible. This isn't the Christian courage. Ultimately, YOLO leads to impulse decisions, right? Christian courage is this courage. You will rise again you will rise again. That courage actually has a profound effect on a life of a believer. YOLO leads to impulse decisions, but you will rise again courage means you get the chance to live by your core convictions. You get the chance to give yourself fully to the kingdom of God. If there's someone to be loved, you get the opportunity to pour yourself out like a drink offering for the one who needs you. Because Paul would say, I have poured my life out like a drink offering. Why? Because I will live again. God will fill me up again. There's no shortage of life. We know the resurrection of life is going to supply you with life. You will, and you have the opportunity to go share the gospel boldly wherever you need to go. What's the worst that can happen? You will rise again. This is courage, man. Paul would enter the synagogue. He preached boldly about the kingdom of God. Because when you know you will rise again, you can give yourself fully to the kingdom. And then there's a third thing you'll see in the community of believers. We grieve together with hope. And we have to do that. We have to do that in this holiday season. We have to do that anytime our brothers and sisters experience loss, pain, hardship. Grieve together with hope. Paul says, brothers and sisters... We do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind. who have no hope. For we believe, we believe that Jesus died and rose again, that he is the resurrection and the life. And so we believe that God will bring with him, that's Jesus, everyone who's fallen asleep with him. He goes on and he says, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, Uh, The voice of the archangel with the trumpet call of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. This kind of hope could be translated anticipation. I'd love to see my granny again. I would love to. I was just talking with somebody right before this service. 1998 was when she passed and we had to rent large video cameras. My mom and dad did. And they would only do that for certain special occasions. We'd go on trips and so on. We didn't rent a large video camera to go capture my granny at her house. I haven't heard her voice in a long time. I'd love to see my granny again. Christian anticipation is that when I do see her again, she won't be like the seed she once was. She will be the beautiful flower she was always intended to be. 1 Corinthians 15 says, That which is sown into the grave now is sown perishable. It's sown in weakness. It will be raised in power. I'll get to see her like that. That's what Christian anticipation is all about. Josh Ross is a preacher in Memphis, and he wrote a book called Scarred Faith. I recommend it to you, especially right now. In the book, he tells a story of his sister Jenny. They got a call that Jenny was injured, and that she needed to be taken to the hospital. Then they got another call that the infection had settled into the injury. Then they got the last call, nobody wants to hear, that she had gone septic. So Josh Ross floors it, trying to make it. He's not alone. He's going with the whole family and with the whole community of of their church, of their town, to show up at the hospital. Josh says, we began crying out. God save Jenny. We begged God. We sat in little circles all around crying and praying until the doctor turned the corner and looked at us with deep grief in his eyes and he said, Jenny has passed. So we sat there, still crying, feeling the whole weight of it, the grief of it all. One by one, friends and family began to trickle out of the hospital. And then it was just me and my mom and dad left, weeping over Jenny. Eventually we got it up. We started walking the the long hallway out to the front door, the main entrance that leads to the parking lot. I just stayed a few paces behind my mom and dad. And as we walked, I watched mom and dad walk with a limp because the grief was so heavy. They got to the front doors, the doors open, and my mom paused. It was as if she knew one more step was to accept the reality that she's going to be entering life without Jenny. A reality she wasn't really wanting to accept. She stayed there at the threshold with her foot right there on the door until she collapsed. She fell to the ground and my dad quickly swooped her up. I watched the whole thing take place. He grabs her by the waist. He lifts her just off the ground. And all she can get out is this groan with these words. This is all she can say. Remind me. What do we believe? And my dad was down there with her, holding her. And he said these words. And you need them. The tomb is empty. The tomb is empty. And with that, I watched my mom and dad get up off the floor. And take a step, and another step, and another step. Guys, these are really tough times. I've been in St. Thomas Rutherford with a family fighting life and death. And when you think about your loved ones, I want to encourage you to just use those, those very words. The tomb is empty. If you're over the holiday season and somebody comes to your mind, I'd even encourage you to say it out loud if you need to say it out loud. The tomb is empty. The tomb is empty until you recognize and it settles on your heart that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Would you guys stand up with me as we close? If there is anything we can do as a congregation to help you, we want to bring you from in Adam to in Christ. You can come forward. You can also go to the back. We'd like to serve you, bless you. Let me close with this reading. Jesus said to her, that's Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives by believing me will never die. Do you believe this? Let's sing out, church.